Uh, turn please to Mark in chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, I'm reading with verse 28, so I'll read verses 28 through 34, Mark chapter 12. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven now, we come to your word, I pray that you would work in us all that is well-pleasing in your sight. That is to say, Father, I pray that you would work in us a great measure of holy affection for your word uh, and for you, that our hearts would be affected by this word and it would produce in us great fruits, the fruits of love for you and love for each other. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man responded or replied, You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Him any more questions. There's a change here, a bit as Mark lays out these events in the life of Jesus, there's a change a little bit in the tone. Jesus is still on display, still on trial. Uh, they're still coming after him. Uh, they're still trying to find fault with him. Uh, still at issue is Jesus' authority. And they come to him with this notion, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you, do you cleanse this temple and tell us that our worship is wrong? By what authority do you drive out these money changers? By... By what authority do you call people to follow you? Uh, they've been trying to establish that Jesus doesn't have authority for these things, and so they've been debating with him. The debates uh, took on ramifications of politics. They asked him about taxes, of, about theology, that is, resurrection from the dead. And in each turn, Jesus turned them back. Jesus showed them to be foolish. Jesus revealed what was really in their hearts that they didn't want to believe, that they didn't want to trust, that they didn't love God. But in fact, they were after justifying themselves. But now there's one who comes up from the crowd, this scribe, this teacher of the law, this one who was no doubt from the class, the party of the Pharisees, one very interested in the law. And he comes to Jesus and he's thinking, at least Mark lets us know that, that Jesus had done well in these debates. That Jesus had answered well. He was impressed with Jesus. You don't get this edge on him as you do the other questioners that, that he's trying to test Jesus, to tempt him, to try to see if Jesus will, will, will make a mistake here, will fail, will show himself as one without authority. But rather you see him rather intrigued with Jesus. He, he wants really to know Jesus' opinion on a particular matter. The particular matter upon which he wants Jesus' opinion is one that was a very interesting question of the day, especially among the Pharisees, because you see, the Pharisees were law keepers. Uh, 
they had taken the law and, and laid it out into some 613 different rules that they must follow. More than half of those rules were sort of negative ones, that is, thou shalt not, and then fewer than half were positive ones, that is, thou shalt. But, but in all those rules, there was always the question among the Pharisees, always the question to the rabbis, which of these rules, which of these commandments are the heaviest, and which are the lightest, which are the most important, which are the least? Not unlike the questions that we oftentimes ask about our own faith, what's essential, what isn't? And so they would ask these questions and the rabbis would debate back and forth. Well, now this man sees Jesus and he's impressed with him. So he, he thinks, well, I'll raise this question of questions to him. Uh, which of all the commandments uh, is the greatest? And you know Jesus' answer. Verse 29, he says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these now what fascinates me about this and there's a lot of things that fascinate me about this that I can't get to today so we may have to linger here just another longer than one Sunday we may get through the gospel of Mark sometime we might not Jesus may return before we do which could mean any time between now and the next millennium we don't know but uh but the thing that's fascinating for me now, this week, is why is it that Jesus chose these two commandments, even why did he give him two and not one? And then, at the very end of this, you see, this man responds positively in some sense to Jesus, and Jesus says these very, at least to my ear, strange words, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And so you see, what is the relationship between these two commandments and entrance into, or being at least near to, the kingdom of God? Well, what's this relationship between these two commandments and entrance into the kingdom of God? Mark's gospel is, is, is all around this notion of the kingdom of God, God's rule in our lives, God's rule through his church in the context of the world, the ultimate kingdom being consummated at the return of Christ. Mark's all about that. So, so how do these two commandments relate to entrance into the kingdom of God? How do they relate to nearness to the kingdom of God? And what does that, that mean anyway? Well, these two commandments. The first one seems to be rather obvious. That if you're going to come up with a commandment that's significant, it ought to be about God. And so he chooses this one, and it's in Deuteronomy. We heard it uh, from this text, and we heard it uh, previously as well from Deuteronomy in chapter 6. It's the great uh, Shema, the great uh, uh, passage of Scripture that was pronounced by every good Orthodox Jew of the days of Jesus. Every morning and every evening. And it begins here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. Listen to this, essentially. And they were to listen to this all the time. Their whole lives were to revolve around it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so their whole lives were to revolve around this fact that they were to love God 
with everything that was about them, everything that was true of them. And, and so God mounts one word upon the other. He's not trying to dissect us psychologically when he says heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he's saying everything about you. Try to describe yourself in every intimate detail that you can think. And that is how you're to love God. And that is what you're to love God with. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Everything about you is to be focused upon, centered upon, devoted to him. The whole inclination of your life is to be about Him. And every decision that you make, it's to be what would please Him, what would honor Him, what would glorify Him. And everything about your life is to be directed by Him. And everything about your life is to be defined by Him. Who you are, what you do, how you do it, what you think about, what you say, who you're with. How you treat each other. The very purpose, vocation of your whole life is to be defined by Him. And your life is to be directed by Him. And your whole life is to be lived in delight of Him. He is to be the very love, the very joy of your whole existence. And so it will only make sense, you see, that if you love God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, then if you're walking with your children, you'll be talking of Him. Or even in the walking with your children, the walking with your children will be directed by Him. You'll be involved in things which will please Him, and your children will have a sense we're doing this because we belong to God. People so often have asked us, how did you raise your children as pastor's kids? And they don't seem too obnoxious. I can say that none of them are here at the moment. And two of them listen to these tapes, so hi, kids. But... Um, but one of them is that we never did anything because I was a pastor. We did everything, at least we tried to, we hoped to, we desired to do all that we did because we belonged to God. This is who we are. It isn't because you're a pastor's kid. It doesn't make you any different than anyone else. We do this stuff anyway because we belong to God. And we're to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so our kids, their kids, our kids should understand that while we're walking around, we're walking the way that we're walking because we belong to Him. And we speak of him. And they even had all these nice little external cues in their lives. They had phylacteries, they're called, these little boxes that they'd make out of leather and tie and strap around as we might a wristwatch or a bracelet. And in that little box, they would write little verses. And this would be one. And so they would know it's in there. And you could, you, the, the, the purpose would be as a reminder. Now it got to be, as most things get to be for us, sort of habit. And we touch it and you think, well, I've said it, but you haven't. But in this box was here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. It's to be there. So when you're walking around, and they would put these on their wrists and they would even put them on their foreheads. The symbolism being this is what's to be in your mind all the time. They would put them on their doorposts. In fact, in, 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 if you know people who are Orthodox Jews or if you see movies or whatever, often the habit of someone who is Jewish will, will walk into their home and hit the doorpost. And it's, it's not just what little kids do when they're running under a doorpost to see if they can jump and touch it. It's because the doorpost is to remind them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when they touch it, there's a sense in it. It's to be a reminder of that their whole lives, whether they're with their children, whether they're in their homes, or whether, wherever they are, 
what they're thinking, what they're doing. Everything is to be because we're devoted to, we belong to, and here's that word, because we love God. Because you see, God is supreme over all things. He's not simply the first in a list. Now, very often we make lists, God first, family second, work third, ourselves last, however we want to put that. And we, we know what we're doing when we do that. If you do that and it helps you, just correct it this way. Take God off the first one, and in family, ascribe over that God. That is to say, God directs my family. God defines my family life. And in God, I would delight in my family. And then over work, right, God. <laughs> God directs my work. God defines my work. And in God, I would delight in my work. And then over yourself, put God. Because see, he's not the first in a list. You know, once we've finished God, we check him off and go on to the next one. But God is supreme in every activity. God's supreme in, in everything on our list because he's supreme. And so we love him not only first, but last and always and in between and in everything, you see. So it makes sense, I, I would think, if we're going to make a list of great commandments, not to affirm Jesus because he's not after our affirmation here. But, but it, it certainly resonates with us that the first would be to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul mind and strength because he is supreme above all things but then Jesus goes on and he adds a second Jesus always used his authority and if he was asked for one but two was necessary he gave two he didn't want to be misunderstood he didn't want to to, to have any sort of sense that he would be susceptible to to someone misunderstanding him and so he says now the second is this that we are to love our neighbors, love your neighbor, he said, as yourself. Another commandment out of the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, verse 18, and other places that we're to love, love our neighbors, love others as ourselves. In a sense, he's saying, I want you to take that same intensity that you, with which you love God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also understand you to love others with a similar intensity, that is to say, as yourself. This isn't a command to love ourselves. There's no command here. It's assumed. It's assumed that you have a self-interest. It's assumed that you have a longing for your own protection. He says, all right, now take that intensity that you have for your own protection and now love others with it. That is to say, desire their protection as much as you do your own. You have a longing and a desire to be cared for. Well, take that same intensity and then apply it in the lives of others. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, you may be thinking, well, who is my neighbor? That's a very dangerous question to ask Jesus. He was asked it on one occasion, remember? He told what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. The story, there's a man going on the Jericho Road, and he gets beaten up, and robbed, and left for dead. And you know, there's two religious figures who see him and pass by on the side. And then finally, this one who is a Samaritan comes, and takes care of the man, he bandages his wounds, he uses his oil, he puts him on his horse, takes him to a hotel, pays his bill, assures the hotel owner that if there's any more cost involved, he'll pay it. Now you would expect at that point in the parable of the Good Samaritan for Jesus to say, who is our neighbor, and the answer to be the man who is in need, the man who is beside the road. And 
and, and, and hurt. That that's the neighbor. But that's not the question Jesus asked. Jesus asked this question. He said, who was the neighbor to the man who was beaten? Why did he ask that? He asked it because if we love, we don't make a list of who's on our list to love and those who are excluded from it. He's saying, are you a neighbor? Are you a loving person? But there's even more to it than that. If you would take this parable and just slim it down to these questions, who is my neighbor? And then when Jesus asked, who is the neighbor? The answer to that question would be, the Samaritan is my neighbor. But you see, to any Jew of the day of Jesus, he would say then, but I hate him. <laughs> and Jesus would say, I know. Love him as yourself. Even the one you hate. Now the scripture is replete with putting these two commandments together. There's a sense in which that you can't mention loving God without loving neighbor. They, they go together like hand and glove. For instance, if we look at this same situation that uh, is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse with this whole part is verse 34 through 40, but if we simply look beginning in verse 37, Matthew records no doubt the same incident, but he adds one piece that Mark doesn't add, and Mark has a piece he doesn't have, because they have two different purposes in how they're laying this out. But Matthew 22 verse 37 Jesus replied love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like this love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments that is to say if you take these two commandments away from the law and the prophets you haven't got the guts the essence of what the law and the prophets were really about because the law was not simply a list of do's and don'ts. It wasn't just a duty roster. The prophets were not just those people who came and fiery and said, you better do this stuff. But what gave the law and the prophets their heart was love. What really this was all about, what everything that the law and the prophets were aimed at was so that we would love God and so that we would then act out our love towards God in loving each other. And so you take love away from the law and the prophets and all you really do have is a duty roster. But he said, no, here, in all of this, what keeps it from being sterile, what gives us its life is love. It's to obey because you love. Obedience to God without a heart for Him. Obedience to God without love to Him is not really obedience. It's just duty. And love to God without an expression of that love expressed in love to others isn't even love to God. So the two all the law and the prophets depend upon, hang on. It's as if the law is the neck and the law and the prophets are the necklace around it. They just adorn 
love. Love for God and love for each other. We, we read this throughout the scriptures. Uh, for instance, in Romans and chapter 13 <clears throat> and verse 8. The apostle writes this, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing, lo- continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, why is it that Paul doesn't write, love God and love your neighbor? It's because in his understanding, these things are so closely intertwined that loving your neighbor is the outgrowth, is the manifestation, is the expression of our love to God that he can do it in a shorthand kind of way. And just do the second. Because the second is dependent upon the first. Because you see, really, what God is after is our hearts. It's always been that way. Even as we read through the book of Deuteronomy, don't turn to these, I'll just read a couple of passages. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, Moses writes, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. That is to say, that God took the Israelites from Egypt to the Red Sea through the wilderness to test them to see what was in their hearts, to see if they would really obey him. Why didn't he just give them a list of rules? He gave them some. But what he was really after is what's really in your heart. And so he gave them various tests to see because what was really important wasn't their external actions, but whether those external actions were consistent with what was going on in the heart. That's the way uh, it's always been in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul? And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today. All of that by way of the heart. In Jeremiah chapter 24 and verse 7. And speaking to the people about restoration. He says, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. And they will be my people and I will be their God. For they will return to me with all their heart. What God is interested in is our hearts and you know the great passage in Ezekiel in chapter 36 verse 26 God says I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws it's a matter of the of the heart that's why during the offering time I mentioned Edwards Jonathan Edwards a theologian of a a couple of uh, centuries ago, perhaps some would say, not all would say, some would say the greatest American theologian, which really doesn't mean very much, <laughs> but he was a bright guy. He's most known, I suppose, for that sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a great sermon. It's unfortunate that that's all people ever read of Edwards, uh, because he wrote mostly of our affections. In fact, this book is called The Religious Affections and it's how we're to respond to God. And this whole book, you think, I preached for a long time 
on a passage. This whole book is based on 1 Peter 1.8. Which reads this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And, are even, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He says that's the nature of our faith. Even though we don't see him, we love him. Isn't that odd? Even though we don't see him, we love him. And even now we're filled with an inexpressible affection. Joy. We love him. And love is always associated with joy. And why? For you're receiving the goal of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Now Edwards, and I don't want to bore you with a lot of Edwards. But you'll never read him probably if you haven't already in your life. And so I just have to do this every once in a while so we get a little bit of Edwards in us because he's so valuable to us. But he said that, it was his view, that uh, we have two faculties. One is our understanding. The other is our will. Now they're related. Our understanding enables us to perceive, to evaluate, to see, to discern, to judge. But nothing ever really gets done until what we understand, what we see, what we perceive, the conclusions we've drawn, goes through our inclinations, our wills, which are governed by our affections. That is to say, what we love, what we hate, what makes us angry, what delights us, what causes us to stay. For instance, if there's a bowl of ice cream sitting there, you can see it and perceive it and you know all about it. You know the calories. You know what it's going to taste like. Uh, you, you, know, uh, you know if it matches. I always say that because I spill ice cream uh, on myself all the time. So I want to make sure it's going to match. And um, so I always wear things that go well with the brown. But, but, but whether or not you actually eat it or not is going to depend on your affections. Your inclinations. Do you like it or don't you? Are you on a diet or not? Uh, do you see it as your friend or your enemy? <laughs> All of those things will go into play as to whether or not you actually choose, you actually move to do that. In voting, you see a particular politician and you have a sense of that person to understand that person, to discern, to draw conclusions about them from all the facts you know. But then it goes through your inclinations. What are your views on taxes? What are your views on welfare programs? What are your... What are, you, what are your views on a variety of issues? What are your inclinations? What are your affections? Do you like this or don't you like that? And that will move you. And so Edwards says that religion, therefore, our Christianity, our faith, consists largely of holy affections. If it doesn't, then we'll never be inclined towards God. So he says this. Let me just read a little. He says, like the exercises of the inclination and will, the affections will either motivate the soul to seek and cleave to what is in view or turn away the soul and oppose what is in view. Love, desire, hope, joy, gratitude and contentment motivate the soul and hatred, fear, anger and grief turn it away. Some affections are a mixture of the two responses. But he says this, the fervent exercises of the heart and lively actions of the inclination and will determine much of true religion. The religion, if that word offends you, just think about it in the best sense, because Edwards meant it in the best sense in his day. The religion which God requires and will accept does not consist of weak, 
dull and lifeless wishes which scarcely raises us above indifference. The religious life contains things too great for us to be lukewarm. It's a matter of the heart. There's a sense in which God says to us, how can you not love me given who I am? People say you should not do this. People say, people tell me all the time you should not have long quotes in sermons. I'm going to read you a page and a half. Listen. Love is the fountain and chief of all other affections. If I could say this better, I would. If I could memorize it and repeat it to you and make you think I thought of it, I would. (laughs) But this is as good as I... Love is the fountain and chief of all other affections. Our blessed Savior illustrates this in his answer to the lawyer's question. What is the great commandment of the law? The Apostle Paul also indicates this from time to time. He that loves another has fulfilled the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Moreover, we read in this commandment. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. The same apostle speaks of love as the greatest thing in religion and as the heart of it. Without love, the greatest knowledge and gifts, the most brilliant profession, in fact, everything else which is part of religious life are vain and worthless. As in 1 Corinthians 13 demonstrates, it represents the fountain from which all that is good proceeds. Such love includes the whole sincere desire of the soul toward God and man. Yet when this inclination of the soul is deliberate in its attempt toward God, it becomes affection or affectionate love. This is the dynamic and fervent love which Christ describes as the sum of all religion when he speaks of loving God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds and our neighbor as ourselves. This love is the sum of all that was thought and prescribed in the law and the prophets. It is thus clear that a great part of true religion consists in the affections Love is not just one of the affections. It is the first and chief affection. The strength of the others. From love arises hatred of those things which are contrary to what we want to love or which oppose and frustrate us in those things in which we delight. It is from such exercises of love and hate, depending on the context of these affections, either present or absent, certain or uncertain, probable or improbable, that arise all other affections of desire, Hope, fear, joy, grief, gratitude, anger. All other religious emotions will arise from such a dynamic, affectionate, and fervent love towards God. From it will come intense hatred or abhorrence of sin, a fear of it, and a dread of God's displeasure. From it also will come gratitude to God for His goodness, serenity, and joy in God for His gracious presence, grief for His absence, a joyful hope when He is anticipated, and a fervent zeal for the glory of God. Similarly, from a fervent love of men will arise all other virtuous affections towards mankind. In other words, Christianity is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of holy affections. It's a matter of love towards God. Now, why didn't Jesus say, the greatest commandment is to believe in me? Now, on another occasion, he said just that. In the context of 
feeding all those thousands of people, they came to Jesus and they said, uh, they said this to him. They said, what must we do to do the work, works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, why wouldn't that be the greatest commandment? Well, it is. Because, you see, faith and love are always together. For instance, when Paul writes to the church in Galatia, in Galatians in chapter 5, verse 6, we read this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith always expresses itself through love. If you believe, then you express that faith in love. Faith without love isn't real faith. Love without faith isn't real love. Faith expressing itself, working itself through love. The two go hand in hand to say one is really to say the other. So, Jesus answers this man's questions. Greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. The man's impressed with Jesus at this point. He says, well said, teacher. <laughs> and so Jesus is going, whew, I passed. <laughs> well said, teacher. That really is true. There's nothing greater than to love God with all of your understanding, with, with all of your heart, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that's greater than any sacrifices that we could possibly make. That is to say, he understands that's what God is really after. The law and the prophets weren't after God keeping a log on how many sacrifices were made. His desire was that people would love him and love each other. So Jesus then turns to this man and says these very, very interesting words. He said... You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't give me a great deal of assurance. I, I remember the time that Evil Knievel was going to jump the Snake River Canyon. About halfway across the canyon, he was glad that he had a parachute. And you know, it wouldn't have made any difference if he was halfway across the canyon, or 80% across the canyon, or within two inches of the other side. Whatever, it just, you gotta get there. Because you see, near to the kingdom of God sounds really good, but it's still hell. It's still estranged from God, it's still living in your sins. It's still unforgiven. But you get a sense of some positive nature here going on uh, with Jesus and this man near to the... How was he near? Well, he was near, it seems to me, in the sense that he got it. He understood that it is about the heart. It isn't about the externals. There was no confidence to be held 
in the fact that one was circumcised, that one simply had the sign of the covenant. Because the sign of the covenant was given so that one would love God. That is to say, that Israelites were to think of circumcision as the covenant of God, as the promise of God. And rather than take confidence in this external act, they would say, God is great. God is gracious. God is kind. I love him. They, they weren't to take confidence even in their sacrifices. That, oh, we got that done. Whew. But rather they were to see in the context of the sacrifices the very love of God for them that they would turn and love him. They weren't to take confidence in the fact that they were Abraham's children Though that was a blessing to them, but the very fact that they were Abraham's children should have reminded them of God's gracious choosing of their father Abraham. And that they simply were born into this line and, and, and to see his kindness and love and to turn to him and love him. They weren't to take any confidence in the fact that the temple was there, but rather to see the temple and see God's gracious condescending to live with them in the temple and to be amongst them and to care for them. And they were to turn and love him so he seems to get that but he's still not there because it seems that there's another question that he needs to ask and, and I hope in a week he asks it after the resurrection but this question is okay if the greatest commandment is to love God with all of my heart soul mind and strength and to love my the second is to love my neighbor as myself Jesus what happens if I fail to do that I don't know about you, but I melt before these two commandments. When I think of the context of my own life, and I most especially think of what I know to be true, and I especially think about what I've experienced in the context of my life and my relationship with God and His people, and I still realize how short I fall of loving him. I don't even have to add with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. How many thoughts of mine are so extraneous to the direction of God? The inclinations of my heart still, how many of them are still so far from love towards God? My very strength, the very activity of my life. How far still from loving God. And then I think of loving my neighbor as myself. My concerns for my neighbor. Well, we can kind of back off from that and we go, I love my wife sometimes. Or my kids. There are times when I so love them that I have a sense that I'm wrapping my own skin around them and caring for them just like I would desire to be cared for. But that's not as often as... And then others, even in the body of Christ, then others in the context of the community, then others in the context of the world, how easy it is to be cold to the suffering of others and really not even think twice. So it seems to me that this man is only near because it's still theoretical to him. 
It's still just in the basis of his understanding, but it hasn't gone through his affections. It hasn't really gone through his inclinations because once it goes through there, you see, then it tests our inclinations. It tests, tests our affections, and I see how unholy my affections still are. And I go to Jesus, but what if, what's, what happens if I fail, if I sin? And then, of course, you see the response to go from near to the kingdom, which is understanding the heart of the matter into the kingdom, then, of course, is to embrace Jesus, to see him. And he says, I am the manifestation of these commandments. I have come to, so that on your behalf I can love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. And thus fulfilling the law for you. Paul writes that he came for those who were still yet under the law. And he took upon himself then even the curse of the law. And so Jesus dies so that we might live. That, you see, is the movement from near to the kingdom to into the kingdom. That's the challenge, the question for us. Have I been broken by these commandments? That's the first question, really. Do I melt before them? Do I hear them and say, yes, they're reasonable. I mean, those would be the commandments. But then in our pride, you say, of course, I'm better than most, therefore. Or do we fall on our face and say, oh, and trust in Jesus. The next question, of course, is how then do we live in the kingdom once we're there obeying these commandments? That's next week. Pray with me. Father in heaven, today let us rejoice in the provision of Jesus. I pray that you would cause these commandments to melt us, to convict us, to cause us to realize that we're without hope except in you. So Lord Jesus, we give you thanks again for being perfectly obedient. We give you thanks again for taking the penalty for our lack of love. And we pray that God, in saving us, you would also transform us into lovers. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you stand for the benediction, I do want to introduce <clears throat> some who have joined with us. Um, so let me do that. And as I do, if you're here and I read your name, if you'll come down and just sort of stand right in front of me here on the floor and I have a few questions for you and um, so let me have you come Christy Allen and Susie Allen there they are come on down guys Anna Belcher Caleb Harvey Kelsey Randall and Dan Yo. Dan gets to be the dad <laughs> a number of kids and others. 
Now, if you're here and you were expecting to be introduced right now and I didn't give your name, just come up. I've, we've failed that before and I don't want people to think we don't want you to join because of a clerical error. It's not a sign from God. So, don't, uh... Let me ask you these questions. The first three enable them to profess their faith, which is a glorious thing in front of a welcoming crowd. So often we confess our faith in front of hostile crowds and this is good. It's important, however, even as we hear them profess their faith to realize that in identifying with Jesus it brings eternal life, it brings love in the context of the body of Christ, but it may also bring persecution from the world. And so in identifying with Jesus, it's a great responsibility, a great alignment, and in the eyes of the world even a dangerous one, but in the eyes of eternity the safest one that there is. The last two questions are just in response to the Bible's admonition that we're to be connected to each other. First three. First one this. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy, do you? And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners and do you receive and depend upon him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel, do you? And do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ. And you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating uh, with this congregation in the service of God and its ministry to others. And you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church session. And you promise to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church. I'm going to ask them to stay right here. I'm sure they're thrilled about that. Stay right here and have you all stand for the benediction and uh, after the response to the benediction instead of just simply rushing on out uh, I would just encourage you to come forward to come this way and I'll have them stay here